everybody. Welcome back to another episode of King of the Ride podcast. Episode number 58. Dang, we are zeroing in on two years of this show. As King of the Ride ages, we will continue to mix things up, especially given the the current set of global circumstances. So this, for example, this is our second episode featuring a video component. This is a video cast, if you will. Just follow the link in my show notes to my YouTube channel, and you'll find this exact conversation, this exact episode, the COVID-19 questions with an enhanced video version if, if you have time and the ability to, to watch this conversation. Why would you want to watch a conversation? Let me explain. Our guest today is Rebecca Rush. This seven-time world champion, the winningest person in Dirty Kansas history, one of the winningest in Leadville history. She's an Emmy Award winner, an author, an event promoter. She pushes the envelope unlike anybody else I know. Heck, she's probably won another world championship since our last time catching up, as she was a guest on this podcast almost 20 episodes ago. But more to the point, we'll catch up on all things new and exciting in her life. Namely, we're going to spend a lot of time focusing on the fact that she is fresh back and alive from the Iditarod Trail Invitational. That is a 350-mile, self-supported, fat bike ride across the Alaskan wilderness in early March. Now, Rebecca is articulate. She is extremely well-spoken. She's a poet, so her words and descriptions of, of all that takes place on this adventure are magnificent. But if that leaves you hankering for more, then please check out my YouTube video as it's going to help paint a more complete picture. With video, with some amazing stills, that is why I suggest you catch up on this particular video cast, the newest of the COVID-19 question series. Again, as we are catching up over the computer screen, Please excuse the the slight different sounding acoustics you might catch up on. This is not face-to-face, as our previous conversations are. Although, truth be told, I'm pleased with how streamlined this, this has become. Heck, if there's one thing we can hope that we can get out of this global scenario, it's improved video contact. What, with all the Zooms and FaceTimes of the world? Hopefully, we can we can get telemedicine on track. We can gain something positive amid these foolishly bizarre times. Technology, it is certainly a thing in telemedicine, and it is certainly a thing in cycling. As such, I want to take a moment and thank SRAM for always pushing things forward technologically in cycling. I rode on SRAM-sponsored teams for eight of my 10-year professional racing career, I've been on the full family of SRAM components, SRAM, ZIP, and Quark since my retirement from the World Tour at the end of 2015. Truly, it's an honor to help work with this this product development, to test new stuff, to see the trickle-down effect from the top coming to all bikes. I remember riding Y-Fly, throwback to Y-Fly during my high alpine tour of Colorado, USA Pro Cycling Challenge days, And now that wider, more welcoming gearing is is nearly standardized. Or take the wider rims that you see on zip wheels. The 303s are my wheel of choice for virtually all riding. They are comfy. They are fast. They are capable of riding plush wide Rene Harris tires. 
Or here's a throwback. I met the founder of Quark in 2009 at a Cervelo test team early season camp. We were, we were meeting all of our equipment providers at the time. If you want to dig deep into the archives, episode four is with the Quark founder, Jim Mayer. Now, I've been a SRAM ambassador officially for the past five years, but I've been part of this, this SRAM family for nearly 15. So I want to throw a huge thanks out to SRAM for all that they do to help push this sport forward. That, my friends, is all for now. I hope you are hanging in there. I wish you patience and strength and fortitude and, and whatever it is that you need to get through this times. All my best to you. And without further ado, let's jump right into it. This conversation with the legend, the world champion, the one and only Rebecca Rush. Uh, so this is a busy day for you. Third interview of the day. I mean, I'm I'm thrilled. I'm. I appreciate being called the best. Uh, uh, you had one with Forbes. You had one with a little uh, beverage company called uh, Red Bull, I believe. Mm-hmm. So tell me, as question one of the COVID-19 questions, how does, how does uh, like a conversation with Forbes come to the table? That was a really interesting one. They And I think it's a little bit about what we'll get into. But yeah, I've never talked to Forbes. It's kind of a big deal. Um, but they wanted to talk about um, the Iditarod Trail and the ride that I just did there, but also kind of what it was like to be in such utter isolation, mm-hmm. um, you know, in the middle of Alaska in the winter, self-supported. Um, right you know, chosen isolation to come out to the news of a global pandemic and now be enforced isolation. And so we, mm-hmm. we talked a little bit about the, what that was like personally. Um, and then a lot of, you know, the lessons that are coming out of that. And I mean, I think everyone in the media Everyone, media, not media, we're all navigating without a map right now. Yeah. We are in a place that we've never been before. We don't have historical um, experience to draw upon, and we're all kind of making it up as we go along. And right. So the conversations have been really interesting um, and very different instead of just like, how hard was it? How cold was it? Or whatever. It's how so, do we all navigate our world? So we will get into those logistics and I don't want to state the questions that they may have asked because this is, this is Ted and Rebecca 2.0. We were supposed to have a conversation a week ago and things came up and now, so basically like if you get asked the exact same question as Forbes asked, then A, I'm flattered that Ted King non uh, interviewer is thinking of such well, questions. Well, those questions um, I sent you, we actually, they sent those ahead of time, but we actually didn't go directly like that. And we danced around a lot of different things. So it was much more fluid. So sweet. Don't worry. Yeah. So how, and then, I mean, purely logistically, like how does that, Forbes has not called me. Now, granted, I did not do the adventure that you just went on. So how does the how does that conversation come up like do you have an agent who is who is facilitating things does their research team find out about you does red bull facilitate it yeah i mean you know from being an athlete that uh 
you really have to be your own, your own entrepreneur. You're an entrepreneur. And so as some athletes have agent, have help, maybe have PR, but, but ultimately it's you or me who comes down to the hustle of selling yourself because nobody can tell a story the same way that you would tell it. Um, and so, no, I don't have an agent. Um, I tried that. doesn't work. I find that like, I still have to do it myself. Um, but what I do have, you know, is some really long term partners and that one in particular, that was Red Bull, um, who they have an intimate relationship with me. I've been with them 20 years Mm -hmm. and they know what I just went through. And so they are, they're really helping in this time and place. Um, and it's something Red Bull has always done, but they're really trying to help support the athletes with their needs right now, which is, you know, doing interviews, doing podcasts, doing online, whatever. And, you know, we had a training, a media, like a training thing um, last week with, you know, 150 U.S. Red Bull athletes and the head of, you know, social media and PR and, and kind of coaching us and helping us. And it's something that they've done, not just now, they've always done it. Um, so I've done media training with them. I've done Red Bull high performance training with them. You know, they connect me to like help develop a website. And so, if they truly are, and you know, this isn't a Red Bull commercial, but they're truly a partner. And it's like, what does the athlete need to do their job mm-hmm. and how can we help them do their job? And it may be, you need VO2 max testing. It may be that you need nutrition coaching, but it also may be that you need help, you know, figuring out how to do PR and, or how to do a, a zoom call and <laughs> do a happy hour. I mean, literally they're really trying to coach us in that way. And it's an example that I try to take with everyone that I work with. It's like, even, you know, I have three people that work with me in my company mm-hmm. and I try to think about what do they need to do their job and yep. how can I give them what they need so they can really shine. And it's kind of a leadership thing that, that Red Bull has taught me. Uh, you know, they've taken from a very large scale of theirs to a very small scale. So long story short, um, Red Bull helped land that uh, interview with Forbes. And, you know, it's cool. But and the, the author covers extreme sports. So she's talking about, you know, Olympic athletes who, you know, she's been interviewing people like, what do you do now? You were training for the Olympics, you yeah. know, for four yeah. years. And how does that change your job and, and what you're doing? Man, that's wild. Well, I mean, that's that's a great way to uh, expound on what Red Bull is and does as we certainly know that they're a beverage company and they do crazy. They, they, they give you wings. They give you wings. And, and then, okay, then there's Red Bull Media. And so it's a media company. But everything you just said, it's almost like they're a facilitating company. Or, or they're probably, a partner. Yeah, yeah they're really they absolutely... Yeah, it's an energy drink. It is, you did know. Did you just the, purposely flip your camera to yes, see? Okay. I just did that. Yeah. Shout out to Red Bull. as a good poster too. <laughs> um, My interruption, they, sorry. Yeah, they're, they're a beverage company, um, but absolutely they are a partner. And they realize that the athlete is an extension of their marketing department. We're, we're in business together. Uh-huh. Um, and so the more they help me mm-hmm. um, do my job, the more I help them do their job. And it's... Yeah. You know, you know that from being an athlete. You've had sponsors that just give you a paycheck and there's no communication, there's no relationship. Mm-hmm. And then there's partners that you're you actually feel like a teammate and you're actually yeah. helping each other. And well, 
and it's it's so much uh there's so much reciprocity there too like when they bend over backwards you want to bend over backwards because you realize how valuable it is and you don't want to lose that partner yeah you want to work harder for if you have a good boss or a good partner you want to work harder for them so yeah I try to take that into consideration with my business and the people I work with. And Sure. That's wild. Yeah. You've been working with them for 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's funny because, you know, there's so many extreme sports that we affiliate with, with Red Bull. So there's probably a plenty of Red Bull athletes who have been uh, born in the past 20 years. <laughs> They're getting inverted 16 times over on skis or whatever it is. Yeah. So, is that, I got to assume, that's got to be your, is that your longest partner in the Yeah, the Red, yeah, Red Bull's my longest running partner to date. Mm-hmm. And it is funny when we have athlete, you know, athlete summits or we all get together and I'm definitely like the old lady in the room. <laughs> you know, With there's like... The greatest accolades. Well, you know, and there's, there's a ton of, you know, there's a ton of people like Chris Davenport has been a Red Bull athlete longer than I have. And it's kind of cool or Lindsey Vaughn or, but then you also see like a 14 year old, you know, new skate athlete. And they're like, I actually really love that because I actually feel like it broadens all of our perspective for that athlete to meet me and for me to meet them. Mm -hmm. Um, It kind of, blows both our minds and opens our minds to a different world that mm-hmm. we don't hang out in all the time. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's certainly not the, to hang out on Red Bull for too long, but it's, it's crazy the, the latitudinal work they've done. I mean, listening to Payson's podcast, there's like a video gamer who's a Red Bull-sponsored athlete. And, yeah. I mean, that opens up a whole new world of, you know, what is yada, yada, yada. Okay, so let's keep it in the here and now. One of the more recent and crazy adventures that you just came back from um, is the, is it Iditarod Trail Invitational? Have I said it correctly this time? Mm-hmm. Okay, excellent. So <laughs> give me, if you will, the mere logistics. So, so summarize what the event is to our non-informed uh, viewer listener. Okay, so Iditarod Trail Invitational. It is the, it's the human-powered race version of the infamous, very famous Iditarod Trail dog sled race that's been going on for a long time. Um, and it takes place in the wilderness of Alaska um, on a historic trail that is, is known for uh, dog sleds are, are kind of a big part of the history of Alaska. And it's how they moved mail. It's how they, you know, got from place to place in these really remote villages. And ultimately, um, it's how they moved medicine um, during a, a diphtheria epidemic that happened. Um, and so the Iditarod Trail has a really storied history. It's really cool. If you if you dig into the, the films and books about it, um, mm-hmm. it, it's really amazing. But the Iditarod Trail Invitational is a human-powered version of that. And that this is going on year number 19. Next year will be the 20th anniversary of the human powered and it's um, on the same exact trail um, and you can compete in it, bike, ski or run on foot. And we do the same trail. We start a week before the dog sleds. And this is the second year I've done there. There's, there's two versions. There is the, the short course, um, which is about 300 miles. And then the full length of the I did red trail is a thousand miles. So this is the second year I've done the short course. 2019 was my rookie year on the on the 
350. Mm-hmm. And uh, this year was my my second year back on the 350 with the ultimate goal of, of hopefully attempting the full length thousand miler uh, perhaps next year. Wow. And it, it is um, self-supported. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's bike packing you, um, where you are essentially a hotel on wheels and you're, yeah. you're carrying your sleeping equipment, your stove, um, your food, your, your emergency equipment, um, your bike repair stuff. You're, you're carrying everything with you and you really are self-supported. There are a few, there are some uh, really remote cabins or lodges along the way. Mm-hmm. And then you also airplane drop two food drops. Mm-hmm. Um, that you get along the way. And so other than those few places where you can get shelter, you really are um, exposed and alone in uh, the most severe environment I've ever spent time in. Mm-hmm. So we've <laughs> we've talked about it at, uh, a little bit in the past. I remember when you did it last year, I was shocked and blown away because I had recently done the James Bay Descent where I was riding in Northern Canada. Yes. Same story, self-supported. Yeah. So there are, there are, that opens up a thousand questions to the folks who are like, well, where do you sleep? Which I think is a great question. Like, <laughs> do, are you bivying every night? Do you have a, do you have a tent that you're pitching? Um, so you, you do, so you do carry, um, a sleeping bag, you know, what you carry is up to you. The race directors just say you're required to wear a satellite tracking device, but mm-hmm. Other than that, it is up to you to decide. So they don't say you have to have a tent. You have to have this. You have to have that. And so you choose. And, um, yeah, I have a minus 40-degree sleeping bag, a bivy sack, an insulation pad to sleep on. Mm-hmm. I elected not to carry a tent or any kind of shelter just because it's heavy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, you know, most people who do the Iditarod Trail Invitational, they were trying not to sleep outside as best you can. Um, you have that bivy equipment. Um, kind of as emergency purposes. And you really do try to move from shelter to shelter because you can dry out your clothes inside, you know, you can get warm water, um, but the shelters are 50, 80, hundred miles apart. And on average, you might be moving two to five miles an hour. And so, you know, oftentimes you do have to sleep outside. And last year, my rookie year, I had to sleep outside once um, and I had to do it again this year is uh, had to sleep outside because I just couldn't make it to a mm-hmm. shelter. So yeah, you're sleeping in the snow right along the side of the trail and yep. boiling water, you know, you're melting snow to boil water. So you have water to drink. It, it really is survival. Yeah. It's so raw. It's so, um, I mean, raw is about as good as the word. That's such a good word. That's such yeah. a great word to say. It's raw and it's real. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the mistakes and, are few and far between or you're just not coming home. How about uh, when we were in Eastern Canada, I was terrified of polar bears. What What's wildlife like out there? <laughs> so a lot of wolves. Um, yeah. The bears are sleeping. Um, okay. uh, so good wolves, bear. but really the big danger in Alaska in the winter is moose. And especially in a really, this was a really high snow year in Alaska. So when the snow is really deep, um, I mean, the moose are literally, if they're not right on the snow machine tracks, Mm -hmm. um, they're up to their necks in snow. And so in a really heavy snow year, the moose all come and stay on the trail Mm -hmm. and they, they don't move. They're, they're, they're deadly. And you wouldn't think, oh, moose, it's so awkward and weird looking. Um, And actually this year it's, there were three or four uh, attacks on 
riders and skiers. One skier was like attacked by a moose. He's on his back, you know, with his ski poles, defending himself. The moose moose is pawing at him. And and he he actually ended up having to hide behind a tree for two and a half hours while this moose stalked him back and forth. And he's, He's got, you know, just his athletic clothes on. He's freezing. Right. The moose had stomped his whole sled and all of his gear. And so if you go to Alaska, the moose are no joke. Um, yep. Yeah. They are the most awkward animals that exist. <laughs> and then the first time you see one, you're just like, oh, wow. Um, yeah, they're big. They're enormous. They're enormous. And they make really giant prints in the, the track and, yeah. you know. Um, yeah, we came across a, a few moose, but we didn't have any interactions, but it was definitely, you stop, you give them wide birth, you wait, and yeah. we, riders had to wait hours and hours till the moose would clear a trail no kidding. and be able to pass through. So they're just hanging out on the trail. As a rider, you have to get through that trail. Yeah, and you can't go off because yeah. the snow is up to your neck deep, yeah. and they don't want to go off, and yep. so, you know, you sort of have a little bit of a standoff, and... Um, it's everything I'm told is that you do not, you know, try to shoo or scare them away. You don't, you know, throw food or whatever because they'll attack you. And so you really just have to let them decide when they want to let you pass. Does anybody carry a gun? Uh, the locals do. (laughs) The people that live there. Absolutely. Yep. 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 Um, (laughs) I was not packing in my, uh, bag of gear. Um, but Probably some people do. It's probably not a bad idea. Right. It's amazing how um, how stories, I think, are passed down and how, how a, a rumor can quickly become a snowball into something massive. When, when we were doing our trip, we'd occasionally come across cars and they would sort of look at this enormous shotgun that we had and they would just laugh. And they're like, oh, man, when the wolves come out and the polar bears come out, that thing's going to do nothing to you. You had a gun? We had a shotgun, yeah. Um, That's so cool. I've been practicing. My husband's been teaching me because he's a hunter. Yeah. So we've been practicing. It's a, shooting a gun is a blast. I don't do it very often. And, and so truth be told, it was only the first day, day and a half that we were worried about polar bears because that was the day we were going across the ice and that's where the, the bears are hunting. And then we went off the ice. So once we went over that hurdle and we knew we wouldn't see any more polar bears, my, uh, my team was entertained that I've never shot a gun before and... Man, that practice. thing's got some kick. Yeah, I got the practice. It was a blast. So where do you strap a gun on your bike? <laughs> um, it'll be at this exact point in the video that I'm going to overlay an image of Buck with his shotgun. And to our dear listener, yes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to intersperse some, some video and images of your absolutely wild trip. Oh, I love uh, that. So we can test out my editing skills, of which they are novice, to say the least. So how about... Um, how many days were you out and about? How many days does it take to do 300 miles in the Alaskan snow? Well, last year, my rookie year where I was way less fit, totally unprepared, kind of a mess. Um, it took me three and a half days to cover this distance. Wow. This year, way more trained, totally dialed with my gear, really confident, really solid. Took me seven days. <laughs> to cover the same distance. That's and nuts. the difference there is really the conditions were were pretty horrific this year with um, you know, 
a lot of snow, um, mm-hmm. a lot of winds, the trail being covered, the trail being unrideable. We probably walked 150 of the 300 miles. No um, way. Just because the weather was gnarly. And yeah. so my first year was, was quite hard for me physically because I was unprepared, but I didn't realize Mother Nature had been very kind. Mm-hmm. And now the comparison to the elements that happened this year, you know, the ride took me twice as long, but it was 10 times more challenging and more intense and more committing and, and really life or death kind of conditions that, you know, I don't want to sort of make it be overly dramatic, but yeah. it was minus 40 with 50 mile an hour wind gusts in the middle right. of the night and the trail is blown over. You can't see where you're going. I mean, those are, those are serious conditions and the consequence for making a mistake is, is really high. So let's pretend that my, my editing skills are good enough that right here, I'm going to enter the, uh, a little video <laughs> that you have where you talk about accidentally veering off track. You had a navigational error and, and the exposure is high and the exposure is real. When I watched that video, it, I could, it, I almost feel like a hesitation in your voice, like shit. I mean, I put myself at huge risk. So how do you pivot from there? How do you gain confidence from there? Or how do you say, this is a warm little hut. I want to just quit right here. You know, I lined up at the start line and I was sitting there feeling so excited, so confident. You know, 2019, I was terrified. I was shaking in my boots. And this year I was like, I'm so excited. I'm prepared. I could win this thing. You know, I'll be among the top riders. Like I totally got this. It was Mm -hmm. like a cool feeling of confidence. And half an hour in, I made a navigational error and, um, you know, I was on, I was on the Iditarod trail. Like there, there are, there are multiple ways to go. And especially in the snow, it's the path kind of goes where the snow machines end up going. And, and, and in this particular case, there's a little reroute for the bikes right at the beginning of the course that, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I missed it. And a, a handful of other athletes went straight and we were on the traditional Iditarod trail, but, um, it ended up being basically, I was split, you know, from the rest of the group. And I, it wasn't a, you know, I looked at my map. I looked at, I made a conscious decision. I looked at the tire tracks. I looked at the quality of the trail and I decided to go straight instead of left. And it was the wrong decision. And, you know, it, it basically put me six, seven, it probably cost me six, seven hours, 30 minutes into the race. Wow. And, wow that's brutal. And it was brutal. And I spent, you know, as an athlete, you know, I spent, I kind of went through the stages of grief and I spent the first part of that being really mad at myself and being pissed off and, you know, being like, I could have won this thing, you know, and kind of being in my own head about ego. And then it started snowing. And then I had other navigational choices to make. Um, And then it got real and then it became survival and it became, you know, I better not mess this up because now I really am alone. You know, there's Mm -hmm. only 50 riders in the race and now there's just me in this section and, and it's snowing and it's, and it's dark. Um, And nightfall came and I quickly pivoted from, having a pity party and feeling, uh, you know, mad that I wasn't in the lead to this is, this is the real deal. And this is where you, you're all your preparation, Rebecca, like, you know, good thing that you're in shape and good thing that you were prepared more this year because 
now the stakes are really high. Yeah. And so I had that pivot from poor me to, okay, I better be serious about this. And, you know, I, you know, making some really serious navigational choices where, and this is what's uh, navigating in the snow. It's like, I can get from point A to point B on a map, no problem when there isn't, you know, 10 feet of snow. Mm-hmm. Um, you make a navigational choice. So there's two snow machine tracks, for example, they both end up going to the place that you need to go. Mm-hmm. And this is the decision, actual decision I'm faced with. You know, is this one going, to, are you going to have to walk and post hole up to your chest on this one? Or are you going to be able to stay afloat a little bit better on this one and be able to walk and only yeah. sink it up to your knees? You know, and that's going to be, those are the kind of choices I'm faced with. They're both yeah. going to navigationally, and people are like, how did you make a navigational error? And it's, it's kind of this micro navigation of like trying to read the snow, like, you know, a fortune teller trying to read sand. It's like, how are you going to stay afloat better on this one? There were two snow machine tracks this way and one dog sled. Is that going to be better than the shorter version that has one snow machine track? And I could, this is a shorter distance, but is it going to take me longer? And so that's where I was in the middle of the first night, you know, we started at 2 PM and this is, that night and, and I did pivot to survival and I have to tell you, you know, people are like, I'm so sorry you made that mistake, blah, 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 blah. I'm so glad I made that mistake. It ended up being the biggest gift (laughs) of the entire race, because if I really want to do the thousand miler, this is the true preparation of, you know, Mm -hmm. like, do you have what it takes And not do you have like the fastest legs or the most watts that you put out, but do you have what it takes to survive in Alaska? And, you know, I ended up really having to, um, really having to dig dig deep in a different well than I thought I was going to have to. I knew I was going to suffer. It was going to be hard. And I trained Mm -hmm. and I had one of the, the checkpoint people when I came out and I finally rejoined with the course. And I was like, so how, they're like, they just kind of looked at me and we kind of shook our heads. Nobody needed to say anything. They knew I made a huge mistake. They knew I was bummed. Mm-hmm. And the guy just said, you know, it's a good thing. You're really strong. And then he's like, do you want a cookie? <laughs> like, Don't mind if I do. But yeah. he was right. It's like, I'm so glad that I was physically strong because it gave me the, um, it gave me the safety net to be able to deal with a situation that didn't go quite right. Yep. So when you did it last year and it's three days, this is going to sound foolish, but that's almost a sprint as compared to bad conditions on the thousand mile, right? So like you've gone from three days to seven days and then there's a thousand mile that's going to take whatever it is. Probably three weeks. Yeah. 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 I mean, you, you plan for three weeks if you're doing the thousand mile or, and this year only three people finished. Um, you know, due to the coronavirus and everything that was happening and they're actually shutting down villages along the way. Um, but yeah, three people finished the thousand mile this year and it it took them, I think 22 days. That's bananas. Um, does it, I mean, is there some accuracy in that? Like, you know, in three days, yeah, you can deal with clothes that might be a little bit wet and you've sweat through them and you're like, okay, I'm going to be at the finish line in in another 24 hours. Whereas like you can't make mistakes on week one of a three-week race. So 
I mean, these are the things that you're learning along the way and how to, how to deal and pivot. And Yeah, that's a super good point because absolutely, you know, I mean, it's just like going on your ride. If you're riding from your house, you're riding from an hour, you might not even take a water bottle yeah. or it starts raining and you're like, no big deal. I'll be home in 10 minutes. And you just, you don't put on your rain jacket. You just keep going. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you multiply that by 10,000 and the choices that you make every moment, every, from the start line, the choices mm-hmm. you make are going to either pay dividends or wreak havoc, you know, the next day or 37 hours later. And so, you know, I talked to my coach and what I didn't do well last year, one thing was nutrition. And I just kind of went empty into the tank um, more often than I should have because when you've got a face mask and goggles and all that, yeah. it's really hard to physically eat because mm-hmm. you don't even want to like pull down your face mask to put food in your mouth and you've got gloves on and you're trying to get the food out and it becomes yeah. a real chore and I didn't eat well last year. And so this year, you know, we've made this plan of like, even in the first 24 hours, the first two days, my coach is like, if you can eat, you know, 500, 400, 500 calories an hour in these beginning days, that's yeah. going to pay off on day four, five, six, seven when you can't eat. And that's yep. exactly what happened. I mean, we ended up getting into elements where when it's 50 mile an hour wind gusts and sub-zero temperatures, there were nice. We didn't eat for 12 hours because you physically could not, if you took your face down, mask down, Whoa. you're you're going to burn your skin. You know, yeah. you're in a frostbite. And so you, you, you roll that dice of, do I lose fingers or and skin or do I put calories in my mouth? And, right. and so when it's almost like when times are good or the sun is shining or, or things are, are well, you really need to, um, you need to like build a foundation for when things are all going to go downhill. And so, like you said, every, every action that you make will build on it. And so say your jacket is wet and you don't, you don't dry it out when you're in the next shelter. Um, mm-hmm. And then nightfall comes and your jacket's wet, you freeze to death. Yeah. And yeah. so they're, they're very real. It's why part of expedition riding is so slow. And especially winter expedition riding is because you have to take the time and the discipline to take care of your body and your equipment. Mm-hmm. And if you don't do it, you're going to end up a popsicle by the side of the trail somewhere. Yeah. So, Two-part question. Um, when I did James Bay Descent, I was surrounded by three people with, with excellent, super extreme conditions. So when I'm sweating and they say, hey, dum-dum, take your jacket off or unzip it and cool down, I could do that. I, I learned from them. And so the two-part question is, who is teaching you these lessons? And big overarching question, like, how do you train? What is your training? So like, who is your mentor and who is your coach and how does that all work out to, to train and ride something so massive? So when I first signed up to Iditarod, you know, winter expedition, I called it my friend Jay Peterberry, who's done 13 Iditarods. He's won it multiple times. He's, you know, mm-hmm. he lives in Idaho. And I had the luxury of being able to call him up. I called Colin O'Brady. I called Ed Vesters. He's a mountaineer. Mm-hmm. You know, I've... I had access to people that had, um, had extreme, 
you know, mountaineering or climbing or biking experience. And so I tried to, you know, mooch off of their experience as much as possible. And, you know, I, I would encourage anyone to do this. It's like read stuff, learn from other people, you know, fast track your learning um, so that you don't have to learn that you're not supposed to sweat, Ted, when you're in a sub-zero environment. Oh, I good mean, lesson. Who yeah. knew? Mm-hmm. Um, but exactly like you surrounded yourself with experts and I did the same thing. I did a ton of research by calling up friends and asking for, you know, information. And I took a bunch of notes and I carried that into 2019. And then there's a lot of trial and error where you're like, Oh, I didn't do that or that didn't work. And 2020, you know, I, I was way more practiced and I'd gone out, you know, I changed up my gear a little bit and I'd gone out, you know, with my husband went this year, I talked him into it, which is pretty cool. Um, and so we've like did a couple winter camp outs in Idaho or or, like rode like 20 minutes from our house and like set up and like made dinner and, and, um, (laughs) and we did that kind of practice. But the hard part is, you know, where we live, it's, it's cold, but it's, it's not minus 20. It's not minus 30, you know, it's, it's zero or maybe it's minus 10. Like, Mm -hmm. um, but mostly it's above zero in Idaho. And so I really didn't, there's nothing like being in minus 20 or 30. Like I can't even explain it. Like the cold isn't cold. It's actually just pain. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you take your glove off, it doesn't feel cold. It's almost right. like you feel nothing and then you just feel pain. And so the discipline, like you said, well, who's teaching you when you're on the trail, the personal discipline that's required to not do something really dumb, like take your glove off for too long or, yep. um, you know, not put on your face mask when you should. I, I mean, it takes so much personal discipline to do the right thing. And what happens when you're physically tired is that you just don't want to do it. You don't want to take care of yourself. You don't want to eat. You don't want to drink. You're too lazy. Mm-hmm. And you're like, screw it. I'm too tired. I'm not going to do it. And that's when it gets really dangerous is that you're, you're not totally mentally with it because physically you're so fatigued and you make bad choices. And that's where, you know, mountaineers or, or bike packers or skiers, that's where it starts to get really serious. And it's part of the reason I was so glad I ended up with my husband not planned this year, we ended up doing most of the, the event together. And in these kind of conditions, you know, there were multiple times where I was not about to make a good decision. And he'd be like, no, stop and put your over boots on or stop and put your pants on over, you know, it's okay. You know? Yeah. And whereas I was like, no, no, I'll push on, I'll push on, I'll push on. Yeah. And there's sort of this voice of reason if there's, there's someone else there, but if you're alone, you have to be that voice of reason. And I think that's, what's so hard about solo expeditions is that you have to a hundred percent of the time be making good choices. And when you're fatigued physically, that's really hard to do. Yeah. Wild in every sense of the word. Um, <laughs> I had a question written down here. And so you sort of hit exactly on it. Like, Photos and videos will will do justice. It'll do a fraction of justice to how beautiful it is and how exposed it is and how isolated and desolate and just like, wow, this is this is very cool, real, raw Alaska. How do you ever try to explain how cold it is? Because that's something that 
I have always found very hard to put the words. I'm just like, well, negative 40 is where Celsius and Fahrenheit overlap. But beyond that, it's like, it's so cold, it's incomprehensible. I'm like, I think if you're in outer space, it's probably negative 40 degrees. Yeah. I don't know. Sounds legit, right? Like, it's so, there is no room for error. I got frostbite the first night that we were out in in Canada. First day, rather, because I didn't realize... The consequence, and like you but said, you in didn't your feel it. Like you didn't feel exactly. like it just was happening, and it, you're so numb. I mean, mm-hmm. you're, it's so raw, or you don't care. Yeah, you're like I, I can't deal with this right now. I, mean, yeah. there, I don't think there is any way to explain what that kind of cold is like. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like you know you go outside and you you feel cold and you should put a jacket on and you can do something about it. It's it just, it terrified me going, we did a practice a couple nights, um, and it was a similar story. That was a, probably zero to negative 10, and my only... Warm. that's super warm. Exactly, completely. My only frame of context was finishing up a, regu- like a regular ride, as we say, uh, in the winter where it's like 10 degrees or teens and you're wearing whatever you're going to be wearing on a training ride when it's, when it's in the teens. And you're like, holy crap, I'm freezing and I had to pee and I nearly lost some digits and then I came home and the first thing I did is turn the heat up and got in the shower. So how the hell am I going to transfer that to these hyper-extreme conditions? And it's having the team around you and and exposing yourself to those things and and trying it out one one toe in the water at a time um that was my I think that's what's so scary about this kind of environment is that there is no safety net there's no warm shower there's often Mm -hmm. not a shelter and literally you are your first responder you are the one that has to get yourself warm and whether that means running you know, getting off your bike and running because you're so cold or, or, you know, whatever it means, you, you can't stop. And there's no one that is going to warm you up. You know, your mom's not going to come, you know, give you a warm blankie. You have to like get the blanket out, light the stove, make the water, make yeah. warm liquid, get in your sleeping bag yourself. Like there's so much work that is required to save yourself. And so if you let yourself go to the point where there's no reserve to save yourself, then you can't actually get the sleeping bag out, get the stove lit. And I think that's where someone like you or me that were used to being racers and competitive athletes and put in that environment. I mean, I don't know if you felt this, but there is this push pull of me of like wanting to be the racer not wanting to stop, wanting to be, you know, you know, as quick as possible. And then the survivor who's like, we need to boil water. And I'm Mm -hmm. like, but the racer's like, but that's going to take longer. And then the other person's like, yeah, but you need it. Yeah. You will live. Yeah. I definitely have, I go back and forth between, do I really need it? Or can I go a little further, but you risk the danger of going too far past the point of having reserves to boil water or get your season bag out or take care of yourself. So, Another two-parter, one hand, like, when you are deep and you are bonked and you are, you are, you're prone to bad decisions. Yeah. So therein, without actually asking it, that is one part of the question. But the other part is, you are a trained firefighter. You're a professional firefighter. 
among your, your long list of accolades. So the majority of people who are doing this event and who have to look after themselves are not first responders the way you are. Like, do you think you see... Do you think you see something like the Iditarod Trail Invitational differently with that, with that set of eyes as a first responder, as a, okay, things are rote and I need to survive the situation? Or does everybody who does it, they're, they're that trained in the extreme conditions? Or is that too nebulous of a question? No, 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 no. So the first part of your question is, is um, wait, tell me the first part of your question. Again. The first no. part was, uh, I'm, it's not, it wasn't even a question. It was like, yeah, when you're bonked and you're yeah, the bonking, tired, yeah. you know, like your brain is going to make bad decisions. Your brain bonks as much yeah. as anything. Yeah. So the first part of what you said, we all know what a bonk feels like. And you know yeah. that you're kind of like doing dumb stuff. The really hard part in, in consequential environments is that you have to stop yourself like prior to the bonk point. And that's the, that's the fine line. You're like, can I go a little further? Can I not? oh, now I'm over the edge, it's too late. And so having the discipline to sort of, you know you could go a little further, but you probably shouldn't. And there's this inkling in the back of your head. Mm -hmm. And I find that really hard as a competitive athlete. You know, I want to push that edge, you know, to the absolute limit. Um, you know, my I wouldn't say that... So I will say everyone on the, the I did Rod trail invitational, the human powered version, you know, you've got to qualify. You have to have done another winter expedition. Um, they, you know, not anyone can sign up. And so the people who are signed up are vetted by the race directors. Yeah. Um, and, and they have some experience. Uh, and I, I do think across the board, there is a very healthy respect for that environment. The environment is so scary that I don't think there are people just like, Hey, I'm going to do that. That sounds like, yeah. a cool challenge. like I'm going to run a marathon. I got a fat bike. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm going to do that. I did a ride. I have a um, tent. <laughs> the environment is scary enough and there's been enough footage of it that, that people understand the real deal that it, yeah. that it is a real commitment and people take it really seriously. Um, but you do have the broad spectrum of, you know, really experienced expedition riders to yep. people that are just gritty and they've, they've done their homework and they've prepared, but they've never been anywhere like that. And I probably was in the middle part of that spectrum because when it comes to winter expeditions, I'm a complete rookie. I'm not good in that environment. I don't like it. I'm not suited for it. I have breathing problems. I, I have ring nods. I have circulation problems in my hands. Like, I sh and I sweat a lot. Yeah. So all that put together is a super deadly. I <laughs> um, hear all those I things. I don't like being cold, you know. Yeah. Um, but I've done a lot of expeditions, long stuff, navigating, um, you know, mm -hmm. my adventure racing days. And so I have experience in, in you know, not following necessarily a, a very well-marked course that with a known distance. And, and so I have expedition experience, but I would say I'm, I'm a real sort of rookie in the cold weather environment. Um, my firefighting skills, you know, emergency skills. Oh, fire danger up there. I hear this time of year. There's not fire danger. Um, <laughs> but, but you're right. Like how somebody reacts in a, in an emergency um, environment. And we all know these people, some people sort of are in shock and they stand back. Some people jump in and help. And it's like, they don't even think about it. And they just sort of go into a rhythm. 
Um, And then other people are screaming on the sidelines and, you know, panicking. And probably all of us are, are, you know, some version of that. Um, I think I'm more, I've always been kind of the type of person when there is something really serious, I get to work and sort of deal with the emotions later. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's probably, I don't think that's from my firefighting experience. I think that's probably why I was drawn to the fire department is because I have that sort of personality already. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. So there you are. I think the event starts March 1st. Is that right? Yeah, it started on the 1st. Okay. Now I'd be remiss if I didn't acknowledge the date. Um, I mean, there's no, I'm going to like throw it all out there. Like how does, how does, uh, the March 1st start and the Iditarod Trail Invitational and the unfolding of the event, how does that coincide with uh, COVID and how things unfold from there and how you how you come back into reality? Not reality, like... Yeah, I mean, when we years. started, obviously, you know, we knew things were happening, but it was, there, there wasn't, like, shutdown in our country. We, right, right. And, you know, probably, you know, I was focused on my own thing and focused on going into the Alaskan wilderness. And I really you know, perhaps naively didn't think much of it. And we went in and, and then when, uh, um, we finished on March 7th, um, we were still in a very small town in Alaska and it was take a plane to Anchorage. And so then we land in Anchorage and start seeing the news and start um, tapping back into the community. I mean, you have to remember we had no cell phone, no outside communication, that the people that we interact with along the trail are, you know, really hardy locals that, that live there year round in the winter. So blissfully so peaceful, peaceful, beautiful, scary, wonderful. But we literally had no outside news for the seven days that we were on the trail. And so we had no idea this thing was exploding and blowing up and, and taking over um, across the world. Mm-hmm. And, our trip home was, uh, you know, we flew through Seattle and I think that was my first kind of like, huh, you know, the airport was empty and yeah. that's where we start seeing the news running on the, the channels in the airport. Um, and it, it still kind of didn't hit home. I, I got home and, you know, sort of called friends or like, you know, what's going on? And I was like, wow, this is, you know, it, it, it still really took another week. Um, and then really obviously getting the fire department updates and seeing how our Valley, um, has had to adapt, you know, at the right now we, our County in Idaho has one of the, um, is, is the highest, uh, per capita infection rate in the country. Man. And so very quickly <laughs> it became a reality for us. Um, obviously just from coming home, but, but also being part of the emergency medical system, um, here in Idaho and seeing the protocol changes and having neighbors affected. And my husband's going to work on the fire department full time. And Mm -hmm. so there was a very quick, um, you know, snap back to reality. And usually when I come back from a big expedition, there is also, there was always a processing time of you go somewhere that remote to the hardest expedition of your life, you know, physically exhausted, mentally exhausted. Mm -hmm. It takes me some time to come back and, and get back to the real world anyway, and to process and think about what I just did. But this time, you know, we weren't allowed, you know, we didn't really have that 
space to do that. We came right back into a global pandemic and economic crisis and very quickly, like, uh, very quickly the real world. Um, and suddenly what was so hard on the Iditarod trail, you know, that I couldn't even believe I survived instantly. All I wished, I wished I was back on the trail and how much easier that seemed of the navigation of just, you go forward, you take care of yourself, you, you, you know, you get from point A to point B that suddenly seemed so much easier than where we are now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh man. Uh, yeah, there's some truth to that. There's a lot of truth to that. How about, uh, how does, how does the isolation compare? Like as we're all, um, sheltered in place and hunkered down, um, I mean, have you left, have you gone anywhere? Have you, or are you, I re, that's the crazy part, right? Like I see that the smirk, we're so prone to traveling and we're anxious to travel and go out and go do things. But, you know, outside of the grocery store, I haven't left in a month and change now. I'm, I'm assuming you haven't. Your husband. No, I haven't left my house um, or Ketchum since since I've been back from Iditarod. That was the last trip I took, and and we are also sheltered in place. I'm lucky in that I have a roof over my head. Um, yeah. I'm allowed to go outside and ride my bicycle, and mm-hmm. that's really precious. I feel really lucky. I mean, for people in New York City or elsewhere that can't do that. You know, I really, I really feel for that. And, and so I can't complain about being at home. I mean, there, there's part of me that's actually really cherishing being at home. I'm sure as you are with a new baby and yeah, I, I love where I live and I live here because it's amazing mm-hmm. and I love my husband and my dogs. And, and so that is all, I don't mind that. Um, I don't mind that kind of isolation um, you know, I'm, I'm a solo athlete. I, I'm used to doing things alone. I think what I do, what is really hard for me is, is the uncertainty of our futures. You know, as an athlete, we're used to, you know, you put in this training, you set these goals, you do the work and mm-hmm. the outcome happens. I mean, it's a pretty linear formula. Whereas right now, you know, with with the business that I'm trying to run and my events and, you know, the life that I want, that I cherish here at home in Idaho, I don't know how that future looks. And I don't, I don't know how to navigate it because mm-hmm. it's, it's not a linear progression. And that's the part that is more scary to me than staying home or that's more challenging than staying home. Yeah. I think if you, are a certain demographic, if you have a roof over your head, if if we'll be able to weather this financial storm, then right now it is sort of a moment of peace. And I'm with you that as much as this time is very scary, for me it's almost scarier on the other side. Like what yeah. if it's a world where you can't hug and you can't shake hands and yeah. completely rattled small business, um, those things scare the living daylights out of me. Um, I mean, you and I have talked about, we've talked a lot in the past week or so about small business in the, in the context of, of cycling events. Um, because everybody who runs the majority of people who run cycling events are, are small business. And there are very few who do it exclusively. It's usually a significant side job 
it's something that you pour your heart and soul into, but it's not your be all end all. Um, so yeah, it's terrifying to think of, of the prospect of those things completely being rattled to what end. And, and we don't really know. Um, you know, you made two really good points there. One is that this is a moment of peace and cherishing the little things like, you know, time with your family at home or having a meal, you know, with someone that you normally don't have every single meal with, or, you know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm gardening and gardening a little bit more this spring. I planted and, a garden, a planter box yesterday. I'm very proud of it. <laughs> I mean, it's the, to me, that is, that is the stuff that we need to cherish because really those might be the most important things in life and yeah. sitting and spending time with somebody and, and growing something in the garden and, or creating something at home or learning to play music or, or just sitting there doing nothing, looking at the sky. <laughs> um, so I think that this is a, People should try to find, if they can, those little moments in their day. We don't know what the future looks like, you know, but we can control our, our day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've been making more time to walk the dogs or sit by the river or plant in the garden, you know, even if it's five minutes, um, because there is this underlying level of fear and uncertainty and that, that we all have. And But finding a little minute to ride your bike or play with a dog, I think is, is critical in our long-term health and survival. And your second point, you know, these small businesses trying to survive every athlete. I know every of almost every event that I know we're all entrepreneurs, small business owners, and we've, we're trying to create a life that's inspiring and uh, sustainable for ourselves. And most athletes I know and event directors are uh, diverse, diversified is kind of a good way of putting it. Like you said, um, we don't have just one job because we're hustling and we're, we're trying to make it work. My husband doesn't have just one job. As a firefighter, he's got to have another full-time job too. And, and that's the sacrifice we make to do the careers and you know, follow our passion. Um, mm-hmm. but it's definitely not easy. Uh, in this time there, there is very little safety net for a lot of my friends who are small business owners and, and me included, you know, I'm, I'm hustling to see how private Idaho is going to survive. You know, um, my speaking engagements have all been canceled and, you know, so it's a time to get creative and, and kind of try to protect what we love, but you're right. Our future may look very different than, than our past did. Who's to say it's going to go right back to being what it was before. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it is. Um, have you on like a, a literal objective question, have you had to make any changes yet to RPI? So your event is Labor Day weekend, 2020. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we've had, we have Rush Academy that's supposed to be end of June. Um, there are some training camps in Idaho. And then we've got, you know, my signature event and my biggest fundraiser of the year. And a big part of my business is private Idaho on Labor Day weekend. And at this point, um, we, we haven't postponed or canceled. Um, and it's kind of waiting and see because it's such a dynamic environment. There things are happening every day. Um, Part of the good news of being one of the counties that has the highest infection rate is that, and being tapped into the fire department is we're getting 
uh, resources and studies here um, for antibody and things like things like that that will hopefully help guide the future. And so for private Idaho, I think it's a little too early to tell. One thing I know for sure, you know, I don't know if it'll happen or not this year. One thing I know for sure, if it does happen, it's not going to look the same as it, you know. Oh, uh, you're right. Well, right. Speaking of not shaking hands, like how are we going to go on the quaff? <laughs> right. I mean, how do you go on the quaff? I mean, I, it, it, it will have to change in some format or another because our world has changed. And yeah. But yeah, go on the quaffing. If it's purely a shotgunning competition, then please continue to count me in. Um, maybe we, yeah, maybe we add in shotgun. Okay. Um, we might add that. Yeah. It's, okay. It's self-contained. It's within you and your can. It's yeah. perfect. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. It's, it what is about a your wild... Have you made a decision? The, the sole decision we've made so far is... Um, we offered up if anybody needed to make any um, any changes to their registration, then we, without question, gave them a um, refunded their entry. Um, we are the first That's weekend awesome. in August, so yeah, basically a month before you. And short answer, no. Yeah, it's a it's a frightening time. I was listening to a podcast today that uh, Wuhan province they have just released their shelter in place order, so people are now, as of literally today, they're back out and about, but. Mm-hmm. No, it's, it's, you know, I really respect the fact that you, you know, in this different environment, I mean, obviously you're trying to run a business and have your event, but I really respect that you, no question asked, questions asked, you know, told people if, if they need a refund, you know, you'll, you'll offer it. I, I think that that we're all going to have to make concessions this year as a, a cycling community as a gravel community as as friends and and the bike community um or whatever community you're in everyone's going to have to make concessions to kind of try to help the industry as a whole i don't think this is a time where it can be me first and you know globally we're we are all from around the world we are all facing the same enemy Mm -hmm. it's like a war but we all have we're not against each other we're actually all with each other yeah. And I think that extends from a global atmosphere from every country around the world. But then you take that down into each of your, your communities. It, 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 it extends to the cycling community, the gravel community, you know, your local food that you're trying to support your local businesses where you live. Mm-hmm. I think this is a time where, where people really do have to, we're all trying to survive, but we will survive better together than yeah. individually. Truth. That is the, the hope and that is the plan. And yeah, that's exactly right. It is funny that we have, you know, we hear it from our head shake, our president, that yeah, we're in war times. And it's just crazy that there's no, the enemy is not that person, which is actually, it's going to sound terrible, but there's almost something uh, wholesome about that. Like, it's not like we can say that country and that person and that leader is, is a dictator and bad. Like, we as a globe and a global community are fighting this thing um and it's the first time in our lives ever that our world is aligned with the same goal right right i mean yeah every other war it's us versus them Mm -hmm. so yeah well yes this will be a crazy time um 
This is going to be an interesting pivot. So, so an us versus them includes an inclusionary and exclusionary perspective, right? You and I have talked at length about something like rules or etiquette in terms of gravel because you are a gravel shark and you promote all that is good about riding a, a bike. And you're in the gravel mullet. Mullet protocol, baby. <laughs> so, I mean, maybe it's as simple as the answer that I feel like I'm about to, to elicit. How The question is going to be, how do you write rules without being exclusionary? How do we how do we, for example, like I don't personally like the concept of teams in gravel racing, but there's something that's going to be inherently exclusionary about saying no teams or arrow bars or whatever the heck. So I guess the question is, how do we, how do we write rules without being standoffish and exclusionary? It's a super good question. I think if the answer was easy, you know, if it was easy, everyone would do it. And so I think it's important that as a gravel community and as independent event directors or, you know, riders that we continue to have an open dialogue between all of us, because I think collectively we will come to that answer. I keep going back to, you know, why do we think we need rules or, or ethics? And it's because we want to protect what we love. Mm-hmm. And what is it that we love about gravel? We love that it's um, unique. No two events are the same. You know, there isn't a formal structure to it. We like that it is um, sort of rogue and, and different and, and that, and it is inclusive. You know, we like that fact. So how do you, how do you maintain what we love? Um, without putting a bunch of rules. I totally agree with you. So I think one, the dialogue is super important. Two, I don't necessarily have the answer. The reason I put forth gravel shark ethics is because ethics are easy, you know, Mm -hmm. basically be safe, be honest, be accountable, be responsible, be kind. And that's what I thought the answer was going to be. Just be like, yo, just be a gravel shark. The rest is going to come as it is. I mean, part of it, it is that simple. The hard part is as more people come and either they intentionally want to bend the rules or they just don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm hoping we try to go with number two and educate people on like, hey, this is the kind of party this is, you know, like your mullet protocol. This is the way the party is. If this isn't your style, don't come. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of power in sort of peer communication of like, this is what it's all about. Um, if that's not you, then you can hang at that other party that you were coming over from. And, you know, I'm, I'm very conscious like you that to not recreate either road racing on dirt, you know, because the road racers, what they didn't like about road racing, why bring it over? You know, why don't come pee in our pool. Yeah. Oh, oh, you know, in mountain bike racing, there's elements of mountain bike racing that are in gravel, you know, that, that may not fit gravel is a unique place. Um, Mm -hmm. and so, yeah, I think the dialogue has to stay open. I think we need to support small businesses and unique events that are totally crazy and off the wall and totally different. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that honesty and integrity, you know, need to rule. And mm-hmm. there is power in numbers. And so if if the gravel community loves gravel, what, what gravel is, 
then then they'll want to protect it. It's just like protecting public lands. You know, if you learn to love it, you want to protect it. And so a lot of that is just education. And, you know, keep telling people, yeah, it's the mullet protocol. It's the gravel shark. And that's mm-hmm. not how we do things here. Um, and there are going to be some races. And here's where you and I need to be okay. There are going to be some races that do want to allow teams and do want to have the super racy road aspect. And that is there they can have that style Mm -hmm. i think what's really important with the independent um event directors is that you're going to your event is going to be your style my event is going to be my style and Mm -hmm. i'm going to make it the way that i want it to be with more mountain biking a little more technical a little bit different Mm -hmm. um less aid stations where with another event might want to have more aid stations and more pavement in their route Mm -hmm. and I think maintaining that uniqueness is super important um, in in keeping it authentic. If it becomes cookie cutter in every event, you know that this event is a cookie cutter of this event is a cookie cutter of this event. Then mm-hmm. that gets boring. I mean, yeah. it's it's like not having a, a small independent bike shop or coffee shop in your hometown. If you knew exactly what you're going to get, there's yeah. There's sort of peace and fun and knowing, oh, I know exactly what that product is that I'm offering. But there's also um, the diversity in the offerings right now in gravel are amazing. And that's what I wouldn't want to see go away. Yeah. Yeah. And I love, yeah, you're exactly right that, that gravel is its own entity, um, which is certainly stating the obvious. But yeah, people are like, well, yes, yeah, this combination of road and mountain biking. But road and mountain biking are both and cyclocross and track are standoffish in a way that, that gravel is so welcoming. Um, I was, I did a presentation not too long ago and I, I got to pull a bunch of numbers from uh, bike reg and it's really cool to see that uh, gravel is just this magnet for people who are new to cycling. Like they would never do a crit. They would never do a mountain bike race. They were never going to do a grand fondo, but they're, they're doing gravel and yeah, to introduce them to it in the right environment at the right time. I think that's where we might see this groundswell. Um, it's so cool. I love yeah. it. And it's so expansive, right? Like <laughs> you see so many people who are doing it who would never ride a bike otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's like, is this the revolution that is going to be what transforms American cycling culture so that the person who like drives a big pickup and otherwise is going to honk at a cyclist is now waving at a cyclist? I don't know. That's my hope. That's our hope. But it's it's cool to see that that organic, real groundswell that just, you know, I've been riding a bike for 20 years. I've never seen before. And who knows how long this is going to last. I think it's happening because people are wanting to, and you see this from sort of the migration of people moving from big cities to smaller towns. You see it that people are, you know, changing from road riding to gravel or, or people just riding it all. I feel like um, our our country and, and maybe our world as a whole, um, they want to get a little bit off the beaten path and away from all the technology and the noise. And there is, I think, real primal sort of desire for people to get into nature. Mm-hmm. And I I do believe that that's part of part of the explosion of gravel in the last really the last five years is that people want to get away a little bit more. And you mm-hmm. see that in the way people are traveling. They're, you know, not staying in hotels as much as they're like renting RVs and 
going places. And it's a phenomenon that's happening, I think, because of the speed and the pace that our technology and our, our world has been growing, that people are so hungry for nature and escape. Mm-hmm. And gravel really does fit that bill for a lot of people because it's not intimidating and it's, and it's accessible. Truer words are rarely spoken. That's good stuff. Um, okay, we are we are getting long in the tooth. It is. Uh, I'm going to let you go. Out. For. Say that again. That's what editing's for. Oh, exactly. <laughs> well, like I said, I'm a total editing noob. Okay, we can wrap up with two good two two questions. One is good, and one is from our audience. Sorry, okay. one is from me, and the good one is from our audience. <laughs> Um, what is your 8 a.m. and what is your 8 p.m. guilty pleasure? Presumably in the context of, of something that is tasty and consumed, but maybe you have some other vice that, that is Oh, okay. I get it. I get it. 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. guilty pleasure. Um, well, 8 a.m. is coffee. I mean, I'm okay. always coffee. Yep. And I really try to drink water along with my coffee, but I usually drink a lot of coffee. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's that. Um, sometimes I put like layered, you know, superfoods in it and then I feel like it's health food. But <laughs> most of the time it's just black coffee. Nice. <laughs> um, coffee and a dog walk. That's my 8 a.m. Uh, guilty pleasures. Uh, you know, both at the same time. It's pretty awesome. Nice. Um, and p.m. A guilty pleasure. Um, probably, you know, a Manhattan or whiskey on the rocks, sitting on the back porch with the dog and the husband and saying, woo, that was a good day. Nice. (laughs) That's perfect. That's outstanding. How about um, in the context of being up in Alaska? What do you, outside of being in your sleeping bag and you want to stay in your sleeping bag at 8 a.m. and 8 p.m.? Did you have a... I I will tell you, sunrise was my, you know... I was so happy when the sun came up every day. Just yeah. like it just it takes a level of stress down about twenty percent. Mm-hmm. Um and I was really scared every time the sun went down uh each evening and knowing that I have a very long twelve hour night of dark and cold. Mm-hmm. Um so that was pretty scary. As far as like guilty pleasures, I mean it was so special to do most of the race with my husband. I mean, the, the gift that came from me taking that really big navigational error is I basically ended up with my husband and, and we did the remaining six days together. Um, and so cool. our relationship is, I mean, we have a great relationship, but it's, it's, it's pretty deep now. Like I learned a lot about him. He learned a lot about me and, and it was really special to share. Mm-hmm the beautiful Alaskan wilderness with him, but also share life and death kind of consequences. And, you know, one of our, you know, we're out of food. I think I told you because it was way longer than, than we thought it was going to be. And, and I remember the last night we were, we were out of food and we're like trying to get to the last rest stop that had salmon burgers and, and we had nothing left. And, we found a little bag of uh, beef jerky in like the bottom of one of our frame bags. And it was just like, Oh my God, we have jerky. And so we stopped and we melted snow and boiled water and put it in our thermoses. And we each, there were two pieces of jerky. We each 
took a piece of jerky and, and put it in our thermoses and made like a beef broth. And it was like the best. We were just so happy. We were just like so happy to have that beef broth. And it just, it kind of was one of those moments of like, you don't need much. And yeah. you know, when you're deprived of like all of the comforts of life and then you get a little piece of jerky and you put it in some hot water and you're the happiest person on earth. And it, it was perspective of like to cherish the little things and, and what really is important in life. That's poetry. <laughs> I'm thinking of the actual ramifications of like, you have to exert yourself. You need calories. You need to continue to pedal on in order to survive. And there you are like surviving on 80 calories of beef jerky. Oh, so this I'm going to tell you, I went, I tried to gain weight before, you know, with my coach, I, I gained a few pounds before I went yeah. into the race. So I huh. went into the race at like, I don't know, 136, 135 or 136, uh-huh. um, you know, ended up basically being calorie deficient for days. Sure. You're, yeah. you're, you're, the reason I tried to put on a few pounds is because you're end up basically eating yourself, you yeah. know, you, Ugh. You're, you can't consume enough calories for what you're burning. And so mm-hmm. you're, you're eating muscle tissue and fat. And so, so um, that's why I put on a few pounds. So I finished the race and I weighed myself at the finish line because we stayed in this person's house and it was really amazing. Um, but I was super like puffy and, you know, uh, bloated. And so I finished the race at 148. What? How? It was all edema and swelling. And I, I think I included a picture of my legs in that file. Like that was the night I finished. Everything had just puffed up like a tick. That's so nuts. my lower body was really, really puffy and swollen. Um, Is from this after your, presumably had some sort of nice meal at the end of the event. Uh, Is this after your final meal? I mean, no, it, it was just, I mean, it was edema, it, it's swelling. And so you end up because you're not, you know, you're on the move for 20 hours a day. You're not sleeping. This is kind of what happens is, is you end up um, getting a ton of basically cankles, but from the waist down. And so there was a ton of swelling and edema and you retain water. Um, and so, yeah, I finished the race at 148 and then three, four days later, I was down to like, 138 and basically you're just like <laughs> shedding water um and then yeah. by the time i got home i was 131 so like i had lost weight during the race yeah and so essentially you know 15ish pounds of um basically fluid retention and that is wild i know it's crazy to and think 80 i mean calories of beef jerky with all that salt yeah i mean <laughs> it was too much salt Um, but your body really is deteriorating and breaking down. And I mean, it's, it's kind of, that was kind of dramatic for me to witness. Yeah. Um, It's not going to make a lot of people want to go do that. That is freaky. Okay. Uh, a cute little last one on your long rides, podcasts, music, or nothing. Usually nothing. If I'm really busy with work, it's podcasts or sometimes music, but usually nothing. Beauty. I'm all, wait, the Ted King podcast. You yeah, know, well, that's, you've yeah. already listened to that. Yeah. In your car <laughs> driving stuff. So, yeah. 
You know, I, I actually, I really like to be quiet in my head and I like to not have a lot of noise. Um, so music or nothing is really what I prefer because I really do, my writing really is kind of where I meditate, where I solve problems, where I figure things out. Um, I stop a lot and take voice recordings because I feel mm -hmm. like when my, when my blood is flowing in my body, it's flowing in my brain too. And I feel like my most creative thoughts happen on the trail. And so I try to not distract that with um, other noise. That's very cool. So subsequent penultimate or ultimate follow-up, how much technology do you bring on the trail? Do you have a GPS? <laughs> do you have a phone? Do you have a, when I say the trail, like a Diderot? Oh, and I did ride. Um, yeah, so I have, you know, my Garmin E-Trex, which is my satellite tracking and my emergency communication device if I really do need to yeah. throw up the red flag. Um, and then I have uh, my phone. So I have um, Garmin EarthMate on my phone. So I have the map in multiple places. I have it on my phone. Um, my main navigational tool is a Garmin E-Trex, which is yeah. a a smaller handheld unit. And the reason for that is that typically I use the Garmin Edge 1030 in my riding, but um, in cold weather environment, you need a device that you can put in lithium batteries and change the batteries Yeah. Um, because you aren't, you aren't able to plug things, electronics exactly. in along the trail. And so I use the E-Trex for my main navigation, but then I've got backup on my phone. I have a good old fashioned, fashioned paper map in a Ziploc bag because mm -hmm. I'm paranoid if all technology fails um, but yeah, those are my main expedition navigation is the e-trex, the in-reach, and then a backup on my phone and paper. So that's a lot. <laughs> it's perfect. Well, yeah, I'm thinking in the context of temperatures are going to deplete your phone. Like I would turn my phone on and you'd have 1% battery. Um, yeah, so you're you're That's definitely quiet. trying to manage electronics in that way, and so I have a vest. You know, all a lot of my electronics um, are inside uh, my clothing, like seven layers deep inside. Um, you know, pockets inside vest, and so you know you're storing batteries there, you're storing electronics there, um, and and yeah, you can't you can't run a GoPro or a phone or any of that stuff very long, and so that's another part of the management yeah. system of of making sure your navigation is working and. And, and you can take a picture. I mean, sure. yeah, like those pictures you're going to put up, those are hard to get. <laughs> I believe it and I get it. And I know it. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I still have like some, I still have some damage uh, from that. I'm, you know, cool. from, from taking pictures. One month out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> your, your rapid fire. Yeah. Shock. Well, do you think you'll do a winter expedition again? Oh man, great question. Um, for better or worse, the guys did the, they rode the, I think it's Wapak Trail um, around the same time as Hazel's birth. So I got a good get out of jail free card, but it's the longest ice road on the planet. Um, and they rode that, it was like 900 kilometers or something um, around the same time. Uh, that doesn't answer the question. Yeah, when they did that, I was there was a small inkling of me that was a little bit jealous. It was there is something that I've never experienced about being out on a trail like that. Um, to go full circle, like how raw it is, how how exposed you are, how at the beck and call of of nature is just it's something you'll never experience anywhere else outside of going to the moon or 
being in, in Siberia. I mean, it's just so, there's something awesome about it. There is an lure to go back. I have nothing on the calendar and who knows when the heck that might actually happen. I think the allure to that kind of committing things are we truly do rise to the occasion and you truly do find out what, what you're made of. And I honestly feel the reason I go, you know, I'll go do the Iditarod trail is that, you know, it's, you know, we think that we're training for races, but like the races are training us for life. I absolutely feel that way about these kind of really committing events and I have a prediction about you and Iditarod. Interesting. Have you thought uh, about it? Uh, it's crossed my mind. Yeah. I bet I mean, you'll I, do it. How about so when um, you're ready, when you're yeah. ready, you just uh, call me up and I'll share all the information I have with you. I will. I look forward <laughs> to that conversation. All right. Rebecca Rush, it is actually happy hour in your neck of the woods right now. Not to be confused with the previous one, which is happy hour precursor. Thank you very, 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 very much for your time. Um, I hope this was the best of your Forbes, Red Bull, and Ted King interview trifectas. So thank you very much. This is the highlight of my day, Ted King, as always, whenever I talk to you. It's a pleasure. It is awesome. Great to... uh, Hazel uh, for um, and Laura for letting us do this. <laughs> They're amazing. I just got a glimpse of her of them both. One's now. Teamwork. Yeah. I look up. I look forward to riding with you again somewhere. Maybe on the Iditarod Trail. Maybe in Idaho. Maybe at your event. Who knows? Hopefully, all three of those things. Yeah. All right. With one percent battery on my my computer, this is working out really well. All right. Thank you so much. See ya. Bye, Ted.